Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, journalist and broadcaster. And for the first decade of this century, I did for the Irish radio station RT Radio 1 a music series titled Under the Influence. Sadly, that title was subsequently used, be it stolen consciously or otherwise, for a similar MTV show. So now, after revisiting the master tapes of those old interviews, I've decided to turn the best into a podcast series called The Music That Made Me. I may even add the subtitle Made Me Want to Make Music. Either way, what follows is one of those shows, minus music, which for copyright reasons I can't include. Some of the full shows and many of my other radio programs are available on Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read any articles that arose out of these interviews, you can check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. Enjoy the show. Mickey DeLenz, welcome. And I've just set in on, on, on a sound check for a, a monkey show, which you're doing here in Dublin's Vicker Street. And it was really great to hear something like No Time. That rocks like hell. <laughs> it does. Yeah, we have a lot of fun doing that one. Of course, we uh, were messing about in the studio one day, I guess, and doing Chuck Berry riffs and, and then decided to write some of our own bizarre lyrics. Um, yeah to that classic chord progression and uh, out of that came no time we gave the uh, we gave the royalties from that to our engineer as a kind of a recording gift and he bought a house with it okay would would that kind of choke with that kind of stuff uh, when you first got into music and i know the story is that there are two actors, or there were two actors and there were two musicians that made up the monkeys at the start. And you and Davey were the actors that came more from that area. But you also had a rock and roll band before you joined the monkeys and you grew up listening to rock and roll. So what kind of music would you have first heard that made you go, geez, I've got to play this kind of stuff? Well, that's correct, yeah. I mean, I, I went to the audition as, I guess, an entertainer. Uh, in the same way you'd go to an audition, I think, for a musical, you know, you had to be able to sing and, and dance and, and act. And in our case, they wanted us to improvise. But you, you had to be able to play. My audition piece was Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. I'd love to hear that. Chuck Berry, you got. So you see how it goes. That's what we're going to do. Then I'll dub in the music. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mickey Lenz, we're coming out of uh, Chuck Berry, who we've given two name checks to. So, 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 give me some sense of you growing up and first discovering maybe rock and roll. If if it was the Chuck Berry era, was it Jerry Lee? Was it Elvis? Was it Carl Perkins? All that stuff. <clears throat> uh, I came from a showbiz family. My father was a singer. He sang light opera, and my mom was a big band singer and sang the blues. So the very, very earliest tunes I recall were ones my mom would have sung, uh, like Chattanooga Choo Choo, and Billie Holiday stuff. Um, uh, that had an influence on me, of, uh, of course, by being around and listening to it. Uh, the first time I remember, uh, the first songs that I remember identifying with my generation, shall we say, was I was very young, even back in those days, Little Star, you know. Um, it's a doo-wop tune. Yeah, doo-wop tune. And I remember that, hearing that on the radio for the first time, uh, having a radio even, <laughs> and, and, and realizing that this was music for... For young people like me, I was still only 12, 13, 14 years old, which in those days was quite young. I got into folk music then. But sorry, uh, if we're going to, about the doo-wop, was that, it wasn't Dion of the Belmonts, was it Little Star? I can't remember who recorded mm, Little Star. Little Star, it may have been. No, maybe, no, I, don't, I think you're right. I don't think it was Dion. Right. Where are you, Little Star? Oh, 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 right 
That's it. Yeah. I don't recall who it was. Um, I got into folk music then. Um, my father uh, convinced me to start playing Spanish guitar, Segovia kind of classical guitar. That was the first instrument I played. And um, I cursed him at the time, but I'm very glad <laughs> that I did now. Uh, through that, I started playing acoustic, and through that, I started playing Kingston Trio right. kind of stuff, and uh, The Sane, and uh, Tom Dooley, and, okay. and those early Kingston Trio hits, any one of which uh, I'd be very, very glad to hear. Well, I think we should play, because I don't often hear it anymore, Tom Dooley, the Kingston Trio, wasn't it? It was a great version. Excellent. Let's do that. Okay. Mickey DeLenz, you, you've talked there about, uh, I mean, when we read, and I even wrote about you guys in Hot Press, I interviewed you over the phone in advance of talking to you for the radio show. But there is this reducing you to the corner of being the actor who didn't have the musical history, but you've turned that on its head, I should say, uh, by, t by what you've just said to me. There's a good lineage and a history of absolute music within your family and within your blood. Well, you know, I haven't had many people that have investigated it as thoroughly as you have and, and even care as much as it appears that you do and have done their homework and have done their history. That was kind of the short story. Two actors, two musicians. It wasn't, it wasn't true. It's, it's inaccurate. But sometimes it's just not worth <laughs> bothering to explain it. After I, I, I was in a folk group called Mickey and Dennis, I think was my friend Dennis. Um, then I start, th then I got into, um, uh, uh, very, very early rock. My, my earliest influences were, um, people like, uh, Van Morrison and them. In fact, one, one of the first tunes that I can say I was a huge fan of that I went out and bought was Baby Please Don't Go, which was actually the flip side of Gloria. And if you could play Baby Please Don't Go, you would just be my hero forever. Well, you've got it, now, especially because this is in Ireland and if Van is listening, there's a little greeting to Van Morrison from Mickey DeLance. Okay, uh, yeah. Okay. now to, um, talk me into then when, and give me, because as I say, uh, three of the guys aren't here today, uh, give me a sense of when you collided musically, was there a kind of an agreement? I know that it was very much controlled by Don Kirshner and mm. by the whole kind of the, this, this group of publishers and everything in the background and songwriters. But mm. where, where, where did you guys get together on musical turf? Was it, was it after the second album, as I think you told me, where you realized we can sing, we can write, we can play, we've got to do this. These guys are running the whole yeah. show. Well, it's, um, it's a long story. I don't know how, how deeply you want me to get into it. Um, uh, but what happened was essentially that they cast the four of us for a, a variety of different talents. Each of us could play, each of us could sing, each of us could act and improvise. The, the uh, uh, screen tests were extensive, and out of those screen tests came these four guys. And uh, a lot of it had, the, a lot of the reasons that they cast us, uh, presumably, was because of our comedic talents. Because after all, The Monkees was, first and foremost, initially, a television show, a comedy, a sitcom about this imaginary group having these imaginary adventures, uh, comedic adventures, a la the Marx Brothers. In fact, much more like the Marx Brothers than than the Beatles say, and it was actually John Lennon who first made that, that right. comparison. He says, the monkeys are like the Marx Brothers. And he was absolutely right. The monkeys was much more like the Marx Brothers than the Beatles. And the Marx Brothers sang in their, in their uh, movies. Um, I don't know what the producers had in mind originally. Uh, clearly, they, uh, Don Kirshner had in, in mind a pop sound. Um, that, that we really had very little to do with. They yeah. were already recording and hiring people and having songs written before they cast us. So when we came into it, we came into it musically a bit midstream. Now, theatrically, as far as the comedy of the show, we came in right on top of the curve. Um, right from the get-go, uh, we had an amazing uh, 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 
synergy and and a, a chemistry between the four of us on the television show from the first day of shooting, and that must have come over in the in the uh, screen tests, and that's why they, they one of the reasons why they picked us. And so when we were filming the television show, there was no conflict at all. We didn't step on each other's toes. It, it just all came automatic. You know, that, oh, that's a Davy line. No, that's a Peter line. No, Mike would say that. Mickey would do this, and it was magic, absolutely magic. It's one of the reasons why the show, I think, you know, stands up so well over the years because right. of of that, um, uh, you know, of that chemistry. Now, when it came down to the music, and I only kind of figured this out, you know, many years later, what happened, of course, is that they ended up hiring four lead singers, four singer-songwriters, whereas a group usually has one or maybe two, maybe, but usually just one musical spirit, shall we say, one lead singer, one voice, one writer, male or female, that has a vision. And then that uh, man or woman, boy or girl, gathers around them, others as their sidemen, as their co-writers, as their uh, musicians, who share that musical vision. That's kind of usually how it works. In our case, you had four totally separate and distinct musical visions being uh, introduced, being put together, if you like, sort of arbitrarily, right. music, musically speaking, and expected to kind of come up with a sound. Well, I don't know if they ever cared whether we came up with a sound or not, but what happened was is that we did. Mike spearheaded it because Mike um, was, had very strong feelings about music. And <clears throat> um, he was the one that kept pushing for us to to uh, d develop, to write, to record, to, and to kind of come up with this monkey sound. So in a way, there's two groups. Right. <laughs> there's the group that you hear on the early albums, whereas we had very little control over the music. I could control what I sang or not, but the, the songs were clearly hits, big, huge songs. You could tell that from the acetate demos, you know, right. that Carol King yeah. would bring over and I, and say, is this the right key for you? Um, you know, you can, t you, even at that age, I could tell, a hit, <laughs> I could tell a hit song, but, right. Right. but when they started asking us to come up with our sound, Mike and Peter had, you know, terrible battles about sound because Mike was flat out country rock yeah. Kind of early ZZ Top, yeah. if you like. Well, it's even he, said, sorry for cutting across, that he created country rock with one of the tracks on maybe the first, or second, or third album. One, one of the last tracks, I can't remember the title at the moment, but I've seen in one of the rock history books yeah. that maybe it originated there. It, it and he did have his own songs even from the first albums, didn't yeah, he? he, he yes, he did. Yeah. He wrote one yeah. with Carole King called The Sweet Young Thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so he had an enormous influence. And then Peter, of course, had his own style, which is kind of blues and, and Greenwich Village folk. folk yeah. And he was desperately trying to get, you know, his music in. And he tells the story of, of showing up at one of the early recording sessions. And uh, they said, what are you doing here? <laughs> he was there with his guitar. He says, well, well, well I'm here to, to play on the tracks. And they said, let's just go home. <laughs> you know, go home and relax and we'll see you tomorrow. So they were, both Mike and Peter were, I think, very disappointed. All right. um, I think they had maybe had expectations. Maybe they'd been misled into thinking that they would have more of a contribution yeah. to be yeah. made, where indeed they did not. Uh, even though I had a rock and roll band and I played and I sang, I approached it as if this was a character that I was playing, like Val Kilmer might have done as he approached the Jim Morrison movie. Right. Who knows whether Val Kilmer was a Doors fan or liked the music or could have cared less. Uh, right. I have no idea. I've never right. heard him say. 
But that's the that's the way that I approached the whole project because right. I had come out of, you know, they didn't come out and find me in my rock and roll band and say, we want you to sing sure. that. Right. I was doing cover tunes. You know, I was doing House of the Rising Sun by right. Eric Burden, which, by the way, also had a huge influence on me, and I'd love you to play that. Okay, well, before we move on to I Ask You to Pick One of These, after that, that, after that story, Pick a Monkey's Tune, I will play for you Eric Burden's magnificent House of the Rising Sun. I think we were all listening to the same music, different sides of the world. Anyway, Mickey DeLance, you've, you've, when you said there that there was a point, and I believe it was the third album, because I believe Kirshner b- released more of the Monkeys, the follow-up to the, the, the mm. debut smash, without even consulting you guys. And well, that apparently was the time where you, you all agreed this yeah. is enough. Yeah, uh, they um, well they had re- they had released of course even the first album yeah. without our our consultation about the choice. Oh, I didn't know that about the first one too. Had they? Oh no, no right, none okay. of it. I mean the first album was released so quickly and they already had a catalog of goodness knows how many tunes. I was doing two and three lead vocals a night. Okay, all right. So you were just stockpiling for the TV show, not knowing what would turn up where. I have no idea what their intentions were, but I was just, they just said show up at the set at 7 and show up in the studio at 9. You know, that was the, uh, what was going on there for a long, long time. And as far as the vocals, um, I'm not, again, I have no idea what their intention was. Um, back to the musical, uh, to, you know, our distinct musical sounds. Davey, of course, has a very um, musical, uh, West End musical, Broadway voice. And I kind of came out of that screaming little Richard I did a very early record before the Monkees called Don't Do It, okay. backed by a, I don't know if you'll ever find this, <laughs> but backed by a thing called Huff Puff. And <clears throat> uh, this is... That wasn't an early drug song, was it? No, 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 neither. No, actually, <laughs> no, I was, this is long before I was thinking about drugs. Okay. This is, I was like 17 years old or something. But I was singing like this, I was going, you got to huff and puff and blow your house down, you got... You know, you, I had this... Like Sam Desham or somebody. It, I, another great influence. <laughs> and long before even Dr. John, and I don't know where that came from, you know, but I was doing this kind of voice like, you know, some blind lemon pledge, you know, okay. going, well, I don't know. Mighty got to huff and puff and blow your house down. Um, so that's where I would have gone musically if I would have continued. Well, you, well, you did actually. I'm not, I'm not going to play uh, then because of what you've, the story you've just told me. I won't play the obvious theme from the monkeys or any of that because that kind of voice you did use, as I say, I just heard it on No Time. And my favorite, my, I think one of the first records I ever bought, and that's why I was really anxious to meet you guys, was Daydream Believer, but I preferred the B-side. I mean, going down. To me, Great it's just it's just one of the. I mean, it's it's based on Parchment Farm, but it's just, yeah. well, I didn't know that when I was a kid. But my cr- my <laughs> well, God, the cor- you sang the, the chord progression. Out of it. Yeah, the chord progression. I'd always love Mose Allison, yeah. and <clears throat> this happens all the time in the studio. You're just jamming around, and the chord progression is not very sophisticated mm-hmm. or anything. Uh, it's but I was always wanted to do a Parchment Farm by Mose Allison, sitting down here on Parchment Farm, and it was Mike, you know, um, that said, you know, th- that's a great chord progression and a very cool groove why don't we write some some words so we didn't steal the melody or anything at all it was just uh, basically the chord progression um and did um a parchment farm and i think that's kind of how i ended up singing a lot of the lead vocals because again in those days country rock there was no country rock folk music was not considered to be um uh, top of the charts kind of you know yeah, stuff yeah. pop music yeah. and davy's uh, uh ballads were great but again <clears throat> not that kind of 
screaming Paul McCartney yeah. kind of, yeah. you know, rock I'm and down. roll. Not like I'm down. No, I'm exactly. And then I was, I, I think I kind of ended up doing it more by default than anything else. Okay, so I'm going to leave an opening in the show because a lot of Monkeys fans will want me to play Daydream Believer and I might just give them a double spin and remind us all of what a great single it was. Mm. But just tell me about that opening to Daydream Believer. I've also often wondered, was that off the cuff or was of he course. kind of playing for... Nah. I'm so small. No, this will kind of this will appeal to the girls. No, no, I was totally totally off off the cuff. That somebody just made the executive decision. Well, we did. I mean, that when we were listening back to the tracks, you know, he had he was just messing about. Oh, there's stuff on those tapes. I'm sure that you well you could never play for anybody. <laughs> I'm gonna buy me a dog is is a good example of the first time that we really decided to take take over in a way the the studio. Um, that was a Boys and Heart tune, <clears throat> and. I remember going in the studio and they wanted us to sing it straight. <clears throat> and Davey and I st stood up at the microphone and started trying to sing this song. I'm gonna buy me a dog cause I need a friend now cause my girl don't love me any. And both of us just looked at each other and went, we cannot, I'm sorry, but we cannot sing this straight. This is just right. beyond our abilities. And we started messing yeah. about. And, and to their credit, and everything oh yeah, there. oh, we told you. And to their credit, Boyce and Hart and 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 the producers, they thought, you know, this is this is this is cool. This is this is very very funny, and it's it's funnier than than anything we could right, have come up right. with. So to their credit, you know, they, you know, a lot of the conflict came between Kirshner and the record side of the of the uh, equation. And us and Bob and Bert, who were the uh, television yeah. side of the equation, because Bob and Bert at times would stand up on our side of it, and then indeed they eventually, you know, Donny Kirshner was fired, and and we recorded Headquarters, which yeah. I still think is a wonderful, wonderful album. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to give the double uh, side of those singles, but okay. So let me do a quick intro to both Daydream Believer, and then we'll flip it, and we'll have no conversation between that and Going Down. Okay, Mickey Delance coming out of that. Uh, headquarters, Pisces, Capricorn and whatever, these are regarded as great pop albums irrespective of wherever they came from. I mean, in most kind of critical analysis, they're, they're, they're great records, mm. you know? And for, for those of us who bought them at the time, there was no real difference. It's the kind of revisionist views that tell us they were far less than the Beatles or whatever. Yeah. But if you were 13, 14 or 15 buying them, there was not that huge distinction. They were great songs, sung well. Well, I think so. You know, by that time, we had a lot more control. We <clears throat> uh, were able to pick and choose the material. We went back to using a material from Carol King and from, from other writers. Well, we had also on headquarters. Uh, Harry Nielsen had his very first uh, recorded song ever. He was working at a bank, right. writing songs on the side. And, and he uh, was brought into the studio one day and introduced to us. And they played a Cuddly Toy, uh, his demo. And... Um, Davey, I remember, said, oh, I love that tune. Let's do that. Let's do that. And um, uh, they told Harry uh, afterwards, because we became very good friends, they told Harry after that, they said, you can quit the bank now. <laughs> and he did. And he did. <clears throat> and he and I became very, very close. And um, he wrote uh, Daddy's Song for Davey for the movie head. Yeah. Um, but those other albums, yeah, I think they're... they're can, we, can we play for people now? We've played an obvious one, which is Daydream Believer, mm. and the B-side, which isn't obvious. Give us a title of one of the tracks from either of Headquarters or Pisces, Capricorn or whatever. Any of those albums where you think, I mean, we could play No Time because I've talked about it so yes, much. why don't we? Oh, go, for, go on. Oh, go on. You got No Time. <laughs> okay. Mickey DeLance. Wow. What are you looking at? You're just getting nostalgic. Yeah, it's just amazing when you, you know, when you think back of all, all these songs, my God. Yeah, no, it's only when you see, actually, Mickey Delands, you're looking at the uh, Rhino box set, and it's only when you see them all put together like that, you realize what a body of work was put together by the monkeys, don't you? 
This Daily Nightly was an amazing tune. That was the first uh, uh, tune that um, uh, that I know of, a pop tune that, that a Moog synthesizer was used on. Oh, okay. It was a Nesmith tune. He wrote some great tunes. Mike Nesmith, you hate it. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, no, that's great. Uh, I so, 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 make it nice. We joked earlier about, and uh, you and I talked about this on the phone for the other interview we did for uh, Hot Press Magazine. Uh, we talked about the kind of the, the creeping influences of drug references within the songs. How serious an issue was that? I mean, I, I even saw since I talked to you, Taj Mahal do "Take a Giant Step Outside Your Mind." A lot of kids would have seen that's uh, a reference to drugs, but then, which they became more obvious as the band moved deeper into those albums, culminating with Head. Well, the the references are one thing, you know, the actual drug use is another. None of us ever got, we didn't have the time. We were filming a television show uh, 10, 12 hours a day, then recording at night and uh, and uh, re- rehearsing for the tour. Um, so for the first couple of years, there was, you know, very little uh, uh, drugs going around because, like I say, they're just, we never would have survived. Um, uh, years after, you know, there were some problems, uh, but nothing. You mean after touched. the monkeys broke up? More, well, the monkeys didn't break up. The oh, monkeys uh, uh, just went off the air. <laughs> okay. So you're talking about maybe the 70s, the drugs yeah. issue came into. Yeah, the early day. 70s. I, I can only speak for myself, okay. and I'm not going to uh, speak or tell tales out of school. But, you know, basically I just smoked a couple of square acres of grass. And, <laughs> and there's a statue in Columbia, I think, of me <laughs> contributing to the gross national product. And then one day, you know, uh, in the early 70s, before Coke had really hit, you know, right. and before the, the, the hard stuff, um, I just quit. And I don't, to this day, I don't know why. Okay. I just got tired or I got bored with it or whatever. And I, you know, I wasn't having a big problem. I was still working. I was, you know, doing whatever. I was going through a divorce and okay. uh, at the time. And one day I just stopped and, and I stopped everything. And, and to this day, you know, now it's like a single malt scotch, at least 15 years old, though. <laughs> That's my greatest, my greatest vice. Okay. Um, as far as the references in the songs, you know, the writers that were writing for us, Carol King wrote, uh, Take a Giant Step. Yeah. Um, you'd have to ask her if she okay. had any, uh, you know, what her, <laughs> what her intentions were. We were not allowed, quite honestly, to make any references at all. To but didn't you make, sorry, for, I think there is one about running from the police trying to find a place to hide. Isn't that in no time? Y- y- yes, uh, yeah. I, I meant uh, early oh, sorry. on. <clears throat> sorry, right. I meant in the very early days, right? Running from the heat trying to find a place Running to hide. Running from the heat trying to find a place to hide. The grass is always greener well, growing go. on the other side. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, that was, it, in monkey in monkey years, that was a long, <laughs> long time after the, the beginning okay. of, the, right. of the project. You okay. know, the, right. the, the beginning of the project, for, in our terms, was 65, okay. uh, late 65 so and early 66. 66. So that's, yeah. those, that's yeah eons you know yeah. but didn't you also say that i mean i've seen maybe it's in that random box that you're looking at that head came out of a weekend where you yeah. jack nicholson and bob ravelson mm-hmm. got into someone's limo maybe mike's uh had a few joints and came up with all these kind of really uh, subversive and deconstructionist ideas for a movie yeah well th- that's the short story it, it was a limo that uh, that we we rented us i don't remember if it was mike's or not okay. it was it was it was jack it was the four of us it was um, Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider. And the idea was to go out and talk about what we wanted to do for a movie. And I don't remember too much about those conversations. They were taped. I have film of it. Oh, I have film of us sitting around. Like a camera. Yeah, I had a six, 16 millimeter. I oh, had okay. a film of us sitting around this little tape recorder talking. Um, and out of that came the movie Head. I mean, I know that that I had agreed with the premise that we weren't going to do an hour and a half monkey movie. By this time, of course... Um, 
things were starting to wind down on the television show. We'd also gotten control of the, of the music. And, uh, you know, like that old saying, the brightest candles burn the shortest. Uh, uh, I think everybody kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, well, let's go out with a bang. I love the movie head. I think it was so, so cool. And you're right. It was deconstructionist in that sense. But not just of the monkeys, of the yeah. whole Hollywood. It was very uh, indicative of its time. There was lots of other movies like that, anti-hero movies, yeah. and that deconstructed Hollywood. And and, yeah, well, and Rafelson went on to do Five Easy Pieces, yeah, exactly. which is very much deconstructing a, a middle-class ethos. And the, and Burton Bob, of course, produced Easy Rider. All right, okay. With the money, yeah. with the money they made from the monkeys. <laughs> Did they from the monkeys? Not and, from, and that's from... the first time Jack. Uh, you know, he was because right. uh, he was involved too. I mean, the album is pretty postmodern, if I can use those phrases. Where it was dialogue mixed with oh, songs. Yeah. I mean, it was really this was this wonderful. was avant-garde stuff. Well, at the time, yeah. I mean, uh, I I thought it was wonderful then, and I think it's wonderful now. It's bizarre. I mean, I'm still not sure what the movie's about, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. Um, well, as someone who actually paid in to see it when it came out, I, I, I'm still trying to figure it out too. But, but we definitely got away with a few things. And you see, when we were doing the television show, of course, the NBC censors at the time, not just our show, but but all the. Uh, all television shows were very, very strict about what you could say. They had a department called Standards and Practices, which they still do, but it's not nearly as, as, um, as strict. Um, at that time, uh, you could get away with very little. In those days, you know, a, a husband and wife still had to be seen sleeping in separate beds, or one foot had to be on the floor, you know. It's right. a good trick. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and then on top of that, here comes four long-haired Right. Uh, weirdos, uh, the first time any you ever saw long-haired weirdos on television unless they were being arrested, right? <laughs> right? If you, so if you cast your mind back to that period uh, of time, uh, the show very nearly did not get on the air because of that. NBC was scared to death to put on a show about long-haired weirdos because right. it was synonymous with, with anti-American subversive activities and crimes against nature and all kinds of stuff. So the show got on the air, but they really were very, very careful right. about what right. we... I remember the classic story was we were doing an episode called The Devil and Peter Torque, and it was a direct lift from Faust, from the devil and Daniel Webster, yeah, from yeah. that the whole Faustian legend. Uh, Peter had sold his soul to the devil uh, in order to be able to play the harp. And we, in one scene, we say to Peter, well, Peter, if you're not careful, you'll, the devil will get your soul and you'll go to hell. That was the dialogue or something like that. And the NBC censor said, you can't say hell on television. Okay. And, and uh, the producers said, well, that's ridiculous. It's Faust. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? They said, who's Faust? <laughs> yeah, they probably said, who's Faust? He can't come on either. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they fought. I know they fought and fought, but they, they lost the battle. And on the television show, if you watch it, the line comes up, and I can't remember, I think it was uh, me that said it. I say, well, Peter, you know, if you sell your soul, you'll have to go to that place that we can't say on television. <laughs> so, so you can imagine. All right, but then also, uh, then also they impose a title that you weren't allowed. You wrote Randy Scouse. Get. Mm. You weren't allowed to use that title, and we got alternate title or whatever it was yeah, called. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I, I had. I didn't know what it meant at the time. Or well, Randy Scales get. No, I had no idea. I had. Se I'd seen it on an episode of uh, Till Death Do Us Part. Okay. And I just thought it sounded funny. I had no idea what it was actually, what the translation was. Right. And I was, uh, I was writing the song the day after uh, the Beatles had thrown us this rather psychedelic party here in, in, uh, in London at, at, at a club called the Speakeasy. And I was, it's just kind of a little diary of, of what had happened over those few days. You, you, you refer to the woman I think you then married, don't you? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it is a kind of diary. It was a diary it was a kind diary. of thing. Because yeah. I remember even kind of magazines like Fab 208 would have you and Samantha as pictured at oh, parties yeah. around that time. Oh, yeah. Was that the thing? 
thing that then became the divorce in the 70s it was with yes. Samantha yes okay. that, that divorce show was, was so, the, well, have there been many things <laughs> that I don't no, know just, about just two. <laughs> And you're getting married again, I believe. Yes, I am. Uh, all right. Third time charm. Ever the romantic. Ah, yes. Well, that's what I meant to ask you earlier when you started singing Little Star. I mean, when you hook into something like that at 12, it's like Judy Garland singing Somewhere mm. Over the Rainbow, mm. you, you, you can become very romantically inclined. And that was part two of The Monkey's Charm. They were singing. There were lots of good love songs there. Well, there were. I mean, uh, Davy sang, uh, I, I guess, most of the love songs. Yeah. And But sure, the, 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 the um, I don't know, the, uh, the essence of it was... Uh, uh, Davy being the romantic lead, and uh, he'd fall in love, and we'd get him out of trouble. You know, that was that tended to be what happened on the television show. But let's face it, ninety-nine percent of all great songs are love songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or so the blues, or the opposite side of the coin, the blues. I'd like to play, and would you mind if I played Randy Scott's skit? Please do. You'll get some royalties. <laughs> I get about twenty-five cents every time you do that. So yes, please. Okay, we're winding down, Mickey Delenz. This is good fun. I'm glad I waited. I'm glad I came back and persevered. Uh, Mickey Delenz, we uh, I played there. We, we're kind of we've I've, I've played around. I've deconstructed chronology a bit myself there by jumping by talking about Head and then going back to Randy Scott's Git. But I would like to close with either a song from Head or from the music that you guys made afterwards, or both. But I'd like to play something from Head well, so I people would, can hear what we were talking about. I would too. And um, there's a couple of songs that I'm uh, I'm actually uh, torn. Between and um, that is the Porpoise song, uh, written by uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, um, which is currently actually uh, in the, the movie Vanilla Sky, uh, the Tom Cruise movie. It's either your, your between... own version, the Monkeys version. Is it used in that? Yes, okay, yes, good. it's the Monkeys version, featuring uh, on keyboards Leon Russell, by ma <laughs> as a matter of fact. But there's another song which is a little bit more obscure, which I might even. Uh, choose over that, which is a song, again, by Carole King and uh, Tony Stern this time. As We Go Along, it's called, and it was also from the movie Head. And this featured myself on, on vocals, uh, Ry Cooter and Neil Young on guitar. And that's one of my, uh, my all-time favorite songs. Is it an up song? Because it's not no, one I'm familiar that's, with. that's a, well, uh, a okay. slow ballad. Okay. Want to pick it up? Yeah, just, we, no, I can still play that. But Mickey Delands, we really have to wrap up. Uh, but I'd like, the, I mean, for most of us, and I was talking to, I, I referred to the fact that we're backstage in Vicker Street. The owner of Vicker Street was sitting out there moments ago with Bono's guitar, a monkey's guitar he bought in, the, I don't know where he bought it, and he wanted you guys to sign. And Harry was saying he remembers this time, uh, back in the 60s, 6.15 around Saturday, all kids would rush home to catch the monkey show so a lot of it had to do with joyful feelings celebration so i'd like to end with something celebratory that maybe uh, and i know i talked to you on the phone and you said that even doing these gigs gives you a sense of being young again the joyfulness of it all and you love it so i mean is there any particular track from any part of the monkey's career that you think will send us out on that kind of note well do you want a um, uh, one of the big hits or do you care um, well, it's, it's up to like you. one of the big ones or one of them it's your show <laughs> okay. Well, then, if you want something up and fun and happy and <clears throat> and uh, all that, I would. Uh, m my first choice would have to be "Sunny Girlfriend," uh, written by Mike Nesmith. Okay. And your second choice? Give me an option. Um. It, things like listen to the band and all that don't carry as much resonance for you, do they? Later, the later on stuff. Oh God, that's a good one too. 
Do you know what it is? Yeah. Because, I mean, a lot of people say that was almost like a coded cry from the monkeys to say, look, we, we're sick of getting this stuff about not playing our own instruments. That's a not good right. You know what I mean? That's a good okay, so let me lead into that. Okay, Mickey Delenz, Before uh, there's still a lot of nonsense written about the monkeys, and I tried to undo it in the Hot Press interview, uh, namely that you never played instruments, you never wrote your own uh, music, and that you probably had, Don Kirshner probably sang them all. You know, <laughs> this kind of idea, whereas the, a book of the monkeys' work was, was written and played uh, by, by the band themselves. So a lot of a lot of people have seen the song, listened to the band as almost a coded cry for we were a band or we became a band in the end or after the second album and we made music and would somebody please, mm. uh, you know, recognize that fact. Yeah. Listen to the band. So you like to, is that what that song meant to a lot of people though or meant to the band itself? Well, it certainly meant that to us. I don't know what it meant to other people, but it certainly meant that to us. All right. And you're still enjoying being a monkey. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. All right. Mickey Delenz, thank you very much for doing it under the influence. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. More can be heard, as I said, at joejacksoninterviewer.com.